So I now have the privilege to welcome up Miguel, and he will continue our series on Exodus. Last week, I was supposed to talk about the 10 plagues, and of course, there's 35 minutes, there's no way I could even go through one plague, okay? So I went through a portion of a plague, okay? One of the things I want to read is this. It says, the better we understand God's character, the better we can understand our role in the time in which we are currently living. When I read the Bible, and I mentioned this the first week, when I read the Bible, or I should say this, and Iona, where are you? Is she here? Iona, I think she stepped outside. I have a lot of students who experience what Iona experienced, or experienced, or is experiencing. I teach at Azusa Pacific, and I teach the Hebrew Bible. I teach the Old Testament. And I would say, between the two semesters, I meet with almost 50 to 60 students who are experiencing what Iona experiences. The truth is, it's what she was saying. Part of what she was saying, um, Iona, welcome back. Part of what you were saying, Iona, is a lack of community. And that's what a lot of our students experience, is a lack of community, and where they don't feel comfortable sharing certain things. And I had a student, Iona, who reminded me of you, and I remember one time I was saying, and we kept talking and talking about community and the importance of community. And then she broke down in class and she started crying. But my class is one of those where everyone feels comfortable sharing whatever they want because they know there's no reprisal for me. And if there's reprisal from the students or a student, then the student isn't in my class very long. When I ran youth groups, I'll just tell you, I was very pragmatic. When I ran my youth groups, if I had a student not just misbehaving, and I'm talking high school kids who were out of control and were greatly negatively affecting the youth group, I removed them from the group. It didn't mean I stopped meeting with that individual or that person was kicked out of the church, but that person needed much, much more than even the whole group could offer. Christianity is interesting. Community is interesting, and it brings with it so many things. But this is my reminder. Often when we read the Bible, we don't so much read it and ask the question, what does it say about God's character or what does it say about God? We ask, what does it say about me? And the reason is this, there are too many times that we are far more American than we are Christian, and that's the truth. That's the absolute truth. We want the Bible to match our political viewpoint, and if there are places in the Bible that don't match our political viewpoint, what do we do? We just disregard them. We want it to match our economic viewpoint, our philosophy on crime and all these things. And I mean, look at the size of this thing. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, and that's the truth. And when I see students who arrive at Azusa Pacific, too many of them are coming from places, churches, I will say, that are doing just this. Let's keep going. Monotheism. There is this belief or this understanding that we think that the Israelites and throughout the Bible, that they were monotheistic. They were not monotheistic. That is incorrect. And monotheism, if you don't remember, means this. It's the doctrine of belief that there is what? But one God. What is the very first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2? You shall have no other what? That's the very first one. In other words, what? Bianca, there's a song. 
Even though we had coffee this week seven times and we talked about all the music, I'm just kidding, we didn't. We didn't talk at all this week. There's a song that you sang tonight, and it's called? Our God is what? Our God is greater. The author didn't realize what he was doing theologically. Maybe she did. But it says this, our God is what? And then what? What's the next line? Stronger. Then what? than any other. other. But our evangelical brothers and sisters are singing that song on a weekly basis, never thinking about the first commandment. Thinking that there's only one. This is what the Hebrew Bible, and throughout the Bible, by the way, New Testament too, it says this. It's not monotheism. It's monolatrism. The recognition of the existence of many gods, but with one consistent what? Worship of only one deity. That's what the Hebrew Bible is. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, no, 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 no. Isaiah says this, one what? There is only one true God. But every time somebody comes up to me and says that, I say, absolutely, it does say that. But then I ask them, why does it say that? And they have no answer. And then I ask them, so what do you do with the second commandment? Do you just cross it out or tear out that page? Well, no. You can give me the what, or we often give the what, but we rarely give the why, or ask the why. That's why I can ask you, what is your favorite Vertigo movie, or Alfred Hitchcock movie? You can see mine, right? Uh, what is your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie? And you can name something, but then when you start to ask why, you really get to perhaps know about that individual's character. Perhaps what you don't want to know, but you ask the question, and we go from there, as some of you laugh. Let's keep going. Tenth Plague. Turn to chapter 12 of Exodus, please. Now, we started with the 10th plagues last week, and I was only going to go to the 10th plague because I wasn't going to go through the first nine. The 10th plague is very simple. Chapter 12 and verse 12. And we all have different translations. I think I have the ASV up on the screen on the pulpit here. I have the New Revised Standard Version. Some of you have the NIV. Some of you have the King James. We're all over the place. That's who we are. We're Americans. We choose the Bible that we want to what? Read, right? But it says this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt. Who's I? It is God. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man or human and what? I really feel badly for these beasts, because what did they do? Is it fair? Is it just? Absolutely not. But last week I told you, God isn't always fair, and God isn't always just. Just doesn't work that way either. Okay? But that's not the end of this. It says this, and on all the what? Gods. Gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am what? The Lord. Listen to me, please. The Bible does not deny the existence of other gods. In fact, it's all over the place. We living today don't believe this. You know why? Because we live in the United States in 2013. We don't live 5,000 years ago. You have to remember, when these things were written, they also believed that the earth was the center of what? The universe, for goodness sake. When you get to Joshua, one of my favorite books, and you get to Joshua, and remember where it says? Something, two things stood still. What were they? Remember? It was the sun and the moon. We remember the sun, but we forget the moon part. What's the problem? What's the problem? Exactly. The sun doesn't move. 
But they didn't know that. They had no clue. They got the moon part right, because the moon does go around us, right? I think it still does, last time I checked. But it says that the sun stood still. No, if anything, we did, okay? This is the time that they are living. It is why Galileo Galilei, brilliant man, it is why he made that bold attempt to try to tell the church and the world by the way, the earth, mm, we're not the center of the universe. Because let me tell you this, it's also biblical. The Psalms talk about us and the earth being the center of the universe. So it talks about. But they weren't scientists. They weren't living in 2013. Galileo Galilei, when he put that book out there, when he published it, he actually had it written for years. But it wasn't until a friend of his, a personal friend of his, became the next pope. And then he felt comfortable. He said, you know what? This is my buddy. He would never put me in prison, let alone kill me. But he actually put his friend in a tough spot. His friend said, you know what? I can't turn away from this. You're going against law. You're going against the policies of the Bible and the laws of the Bible, the laws of the church. The best I can do for you is this. Give you house arrest for the rest of your life. Because they believe he was wrong. Why? Because the Bible says the earth is the center of the universe. Let me keep going. It says this. Moses as what? As God to Aaron. Turn to Exodus chapter 4 real quick. Exodus chapter 4. Now, in Exodus chapter 4 is where Moses is being called. He's being called by God to lead the Israelites and others out of slavery. Let me know how many years they were enslaved. 430 years. I know one of the questions I always get from my students is this, what took so long? And that's a serious question. It's a real question. I always like to say this, if we compare it to what happened in the Holocaust in World War II to the Jews, future Israelites, it was awful what happened in the Holocaust, but it was less than 10 years. They were enslaved for four hundred and thirty years. Four hundred and thirty years. And when it talks about these other gods, and then we're going to get to the golden calf episode right now, and they're going to say, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt? Absolutely. They were enslaved for four hundred and thirty years. If any gods were in charge, it was the Egyptian gods. Again, these are things we do not want to... By the way, these are things so many of, too many of our churches would never want to say from the pulpit. Exodus chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, He, Aaron, shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth. And you, Moses, shall be as what? And this is not small g, it is capital G. It is a battle of gods. That's what's going on. It is a battle of gods throughout the Bible. From the beginning to the very end. That's what it's about. The ten plagues, as you go through them, this is what God is doing, one by one, starting with the first plague, the second, the third, fourth, fifth, all the way, he's knocking down their most powerful gods. He's crushing them. That's what God is doing. Let me keep going. First commandment. Turn to Exodus chapter 20, please. I'm going to start reading in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, then, now, there's some English majors here, and perhaps you don't have to be an English major. Then, that one word tells you what? Yep, 
time, and something happened prior, correct? Then God spoke all these words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God. God reintroduces himself, says who I am. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? That's the introduction, okay? Because God brought them out of Egypt, brings them out of the land of slavery, now God can make demands upon them, and that's what God does. And the demands begin, or the responsibilities begin. That's what truly begins. Now they're out, and now they're responsible. Let me keep going. The first one, and it says this, you shall have what? No, the God's before me. And by the way, before me doesn't just mean in front. It means besides me, which also means this. Even if you were to place these gods beside me, they can't compare to me. These gods that do what? Exist according to the Bible, not us today in 2013. Let me keep going. Second commandment says this. Look at verse 4. You should not make for yourselves a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, which is really interesting, right? Let alone in the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, but it keeps going. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, which for an 18, 19-year-old student, 17-year-old student, blows them away. So many of them, too many of them, come from topical sermons, Okay? I've mentioned this already. This is the third week. I'll just tell you right now, I hate topical sermons. They are doing way too much damage to the church. Again, look at the size of this Bible. I can say this. Ten top ways to ride the Bart like a Christian. The Bible talks about it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But trust me, we have something like that out there, and it's destroying the church. It's making us look like fools. Let me read this again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Because the students look at me and they say, but when I'm dating my boyfriend and stuff, or my girlfriend, or whatever it is, and the jealousy stuff part comes up, it's usually a negative. It's a weakness. You have nothing to be jealous of. What does an all-encompassing, all-powerful God have to be jealous about? Is it a weakness? Let me keep going. Jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, of those who hate me. This is a conditional statement, by the way. And the Bible is filled with conditions or responsibilities. It says this, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Next week, just want to tell you right now, I'm going to talk about God's conditional love. This is another thing that is destroying the church. We preach as if God's love is only unconditional. And I always ask this of my students. I ask them this. What is the difference between you and your non-Christian friends? Is it simply that you call yourself a Christian as far as your actions are concerned? Because they think that God only loves them unconditionally and that there's no responsibility. And as long as I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I'm done. That's it. I can live any life I want because God, well, I've said those magic words. I'm here to tell you that's not it. That's just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. I see these students, thousands and thousands and thousands of students at Azusa Pacific. They arrive with no responsibility in the faith. One of the things that comes up far too often is this. At the end of the semester, they say this. I had no idea the Bible speaks so often about helping the poor. 
and we're laughing, but that is absolutely happening. And let me just tell you, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke, and it's so frustrating. Let me keep going here. Turn to Psalm 82, please. Now, Psalm 82 is another place where my students simply get absolutely stuck. I have students that after reading Psalm 82 cannot go any further in the class or their faith. They're stuck right there for a time being. It could be a month, it could be two, it could be six months, but they get stuck. Psalm 82 is an amazing psalm, and it will mess us up. It can mess us up. It can mess. But you know what? By the way, it's in the Bible. And Stefan, aren't we supposed to preach everything from it? Amen to that. So, it says this. Let me start reading Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in what? The divine counsel. Look up here, please. Don't read further. I know you want to because you're thinking, okay, please look up here. Now I have to do like my students. Look up here, please. Look up here. Don't read on. He's taken his place where? What's the counsel? It doesn't tell us. But you have to look at other places in the Bible. It's not just the Trinity, you all. There are other things. Let me keep reading. But also, what you have here is a court scene. And somebody or somebody's or someone is on trial. In the midst of the what? Who's on trial? The gods. In the midst of the gods, he, God, holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That is what these gods are accused of. Okay? That's their crime. Let me keep going. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the what? The hand of the wicked. As you read through the Bible, you all, as you study the Bible, please also don't just study the Bible as devotional. That's not all it is. It's not just there to make us feel good. Study it also. These gods are on trial. God is the judge, and they're on trial. Look at the text. They're showing partiality. They're judging unjustly. Give justice, and then even gods are supposed to take care of the poor. Even these gods are supposed to take care of the oppressed. Let me keep reading. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what they were not doing. Let me keep going. Psalm 82 continued, says this. They, these gods, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are what? Are shaken. Of course they're shaken. You know why? They're not just mortals. They're what? They're gods, for goodness sake. And listen to me, please. If you're standing there saying, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I can't believe he's saying that. The, the Bible talks about other gods. I'm not saying it. Who's saying it? The Bible's saying it. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with the Bible and God. Let me keep going, please. I'm sorry to get sassy. <laughs> Let me keep going. It says this. I said you are what? That's, this is, let me back up. This is God speaking. I said, you are God's sons of what, by the way? Um, Bianca, aren't there a few songs that use the term sons of the most high or something like that? Sure. Absolutely. Because I get students say, no, no, these are different types of gods. These are evil. These are bad gods. No, 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 no. These are sons of what? The most high. All of you, nevertheless, like men or mortals, you shall die and fall like any prince. 
And then it says this in verse 8. It closes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall, what, inherit the nations. Read Psalm 82 every week this week, okay? Did I say every week this week? <laughs> See, it's, it's, those evil, it's those evil gods. Um, or those gods that are doing unju unjust. Okay, let's keep, let's, or being unjust. Let's keep going. Turn to Exodus 32, and by the way, that is our golden calf, right? Where is this golden calf from? I don't think it said. Yeah, Wall Street, right? But that is our golden calf, right? Let's just say it. That is our golden calf. Exodus 32. Let me start reading for us in verse 1 of Exodus 32. Exodus 32 begins, when the people saw that Moses, what? Delayed. That's the problem. They do not know what happened to Moses. Ione, I like what you said when we get to that point when you started reading through Exodus and you were thinking, how thick are these Israelites? What a bunch of knuckleheads. The truth is, the Israelites, they're us. That's who we are. If we catch ourselves pointing the finger at the Israelites, saying, look at all that God's doing for them, I can't believe they didn't listen, are you out of your mind? If we have one day that doesn't go right for us, we ask, where's God? And we haven't been enslaved, by the way, for 430 years, let alone experience a Holocaust for at least 10 years. We're American Christians. We are very much American Christians. Let me keep going. And I say we. Okay, so at this point, he's delayed. They don't know what's happened to him. He's missing. And this is the person who speaks to God for them. Let me keep going. It says this. To come down from the mountain. And the people gathered around Aaron. Who is Aaron? It is his brother. Is Aaron a good choice to help lead? He's awful. He's terrible. But let me tell you something, and maybe Dr. Bloin may have talked about this this morning. We don't catch it at first, but when Moses keeps complaining, when Moses is called in chapter 4 of Exodus by God, God says, you're the one. He keeps making all these excuses. I'm an idiot, da-da-da, da-da-da, I don't speak well, all these things, right? And then it says this, the anger of the Lord burned. At that point, I pause in my classes and I ask all the students to look up every single time the anger of the Lord burns. What do you think happens every time the anger of the Lord burns? There's death. There's wrath. Like nothing you ever want to see. It doesn't happen there. Instead he says, hey, how about your brother? We've experienced this before where perhaps at work there is a supervisor that doesn't like us. And what that supervisor does is puts you, groups you, makes you work with the worst people at that office. Aaron is awful. That's Aaron. Okay? That's Aaron. Let me keep reading here. So it says this. The people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make what, by the way? Gods for us who shall go before us. Why? Because as for Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And this is a true statement. He's been missing far too long, and they don't know what's happened to him. Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, it was like a wooden mold, okay, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar, and before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to who? Look at your text. To the Lord. Listen to me. This is another thing that we do. When we read the Bible, we often read the Bible and we tell it what it's saying instead of listening to it. Very few people, actually I say, too many people think when you get to the golden calf episode, they just set God aside completely. They don't do that. That line says what? Proclamation, tomorrow shall be a festival to who? To God. To Yahweh. They don't get rid of Yahweh. The problem is, let's keep going. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, now, God does see this. Moses is way up on the mountain with God, can't see it. Then we keep going. Your people, God at this point, they're no longer God's people. God says this, they're your people. Um, some of us, I don't think I ever experienced this because I was a great kid. I don't know, Bianca, maybe you did. Here's your father so we can actually ask him. Was there ever that time when you were supposed to be home no later than midnight? Not only did you get home after midnight, you didn't get home till the next morning, around 11 a.m. Or maybe 1 p.m. Some of you are smiling, thinking, absolutely, I didn't come home for a couple days. And then at that point, your two parents or your guardians look at each other and they say, look what your daughter has done. Look what your son has done, right? This is what God is doing. God says, look what your people, he says what? He says this, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have what? Worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are the gods and this is the problem. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's the problem. Let me tell you something. God wants credit. That is why God is a jealous God. God is angry here because now they are no longer giving God credit for bringing them out of where? Out of Egypt. That's why the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 says what? I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and then gives the law. God says, because I am the one that brought you out, now I can make these demands. And by the way, I brought you out of this world or I brought you into this world and I can do what? I can take you out. That's what's happening here. Let me keep going, please. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation because Moses is a good guy. He's a great guy and he can start over with him, his wife, and his family. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against who? Moses says, your people. Now Moses gets a little uppity, maybe a little sassy. I couldn't imagine doing this personally. Imagine talking to God in this manner. Absolutely not. Moses flips it, and he says, no, 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 no. They're your people. Let me keep reading. Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. And then he says this, as if God needs to be reminded of anything, because this is God, he says this, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants, 
how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. He reminds them of what he already knows. Personally, I couldn't do this. But this shows you the relationship that Moses and God have. I dream for that relationship. But the truth is, we already have it. When you mention the things that you said, the anger that you felt towards God, good job. God can handle our anger. Let me keep reading. I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And then I love this line. It says this, and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on the people. Now listen to me, please. It doesn't mean that God changed. It means that it is within God to change. Do you understand the difference? It doesn't mean God's different. It means it is within God to change. And that's a graceful, merciful, forgiving thing that I love. Now, let me tell you again. Moses has not seen what is going on. He doesn't know. God can see it, but Moses can't. I'm talking visually. Let me keep going. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved upon the tablets. And then we have this. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound made by victors or the sound made by losers. It is the sound of revelers that I hear. As soon as I came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger did what? It burned hot. Personally, this is how I read this passage. Sometimes I think Moses doesn't believe God. He knows these people well. And he knows his brother. And I'm thinking, he's thinking, I think God got it wrong. And I think that's why he reacts the way he does. But then let's see what happens. So all of a sudden, Moses goes down the mountain and he sees what's happening. He does this. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the front of the mountain. Theologically, this is how you have to look at this. It is a marriage, right? This is a covenant. It's these two groups coming together. It's God and Israelites coming together in a covenant, of covenant of marriage. Our relationship with Jesus, is it described father-son or father-daughter? No, it's what? It's groom and what? It's bride and what? That is the relationship. That's the proper relationship. So what happens here is just that. When he breaks the tablets, he breaks the covenant of marriage that they have established. Then we keep going. He took the calf, and they made it, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Now, I'm not going to read this, but I would write it down. Numbers chapter 5. We read this my first week, and it will blow you away. Because there's a part in it where something is ground up, and they're made to drink it. Or as my students always say, there's a lot of Harry Potter in the Bible. This is like a potion. Let me keep reading. 21. Moses said to, to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are bent on evil. So now Aaron is doing what? He doesn't take any what? Responsibility at all for the situation. In fact, he gets off free. He gets off free from it. What ends up happening is this. 
Moses eventually calls to them, and he says, who's on the Lord's side? Come over here. And whoever isn't on the Lord's side is over there, right? And about 3,000 people are killed. And those Levites who do that, that's their ordination process. After killing brothers and sisters, they are ordained for the work of the Lord by murdering, killing people. It's really something else. What I love about the Old Testament narratives is this, is we truly get to know the people. We get to know them. I can ask you right now, was Matthew married? Was Mark married? Was John, was Luke, was Matthias? Were any of the 12 disciples married? Does it tell us? It doesn't tell us. We know very little about them. The most we know is about Judas, for the most part. Paul's later. He has a good biography. But it's why it's so easy for us when we read the Old Testament to point fingers because we know the intimate details of their lives. Now, let me keep going here. I don't have time to do this, but I want to show you something. There is a place called Ein Dera. Ein Dera is in Syria. Turn to Exodus 33, just into the next chapter. Let me start reading in verse 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight. In other words, resolution begins. And I know you by name. Moses said, and then he asked this question. He says, actually he just says it. He says, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I have mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one shall see me alive and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, verse 22, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Now this is God is going to take Moses and put him in the cleft of this rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. That's a remarkable picture. Because he tells Moses, don't look at my face, because if you do, you won't live. But God knows Moses and knows our hearts. And just like a little kid who has to peek, that's what Moses would have done. So it says this, again, 22, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. He doesn't trust Moses completely, or at least I shouldn't say that. He understands humanity. And he actually covers Moses up with his hand as he walks by. This is why I want to show you these amazing slides of this place called Ein Dera. Okay, again, it's in Syria. If you ever have a chance, once things settle down in Syria, go there. It's a remarkable place. Remember, Yahweh, God, literally lives amongst the people. God lives with them. The Ein Dera temple is an Iron Age Syrio-Hittite temple located northwest of Aleppo in Syria and dating to between the 10th and 8th century BCE. It is noted for its similarities to Solomon's temple as described in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. The surviving sculptures depict lions and sphinxes comparable to the cherubim of the first temple. The gods of massive footprints are carved into the floor. Now look at this. This is one of the sphinxes. Not very exciting. You've probably seen these before, right? Let's keep going. This is Aindera Temple. This is Solomon's Temple. Look how amazingly similar they are. They're basically copied from each other. But we don't have Solomon's Temple anymore, but we still have Aindera's Temple. Look at this. This is the temple. You walk in. See this entrance part? It would be like this portico columns right there. 
So you enter through there and you walk through there. But of course, just like in the temple, right? The only people that are to go in there are the high priest, right? And the feet of God. These footprints have been there for thousands of years and are still there. That picture doesn't do it justice. Look at the next one. I love that picture. But this is what we could imagine. Let's keep going. I love this one too. The footprints of God, and you see as if God is walking, entering into the temple. It's remarkable, you all. It's remarkable to see. I'm going to stop right there. Next week, like I said, I'm going to talk about God, the conditionality of God's love, because it's what we talk about. It's what we do. Or shall I say, it's what we don't do. We just think that God only loves me unconditionally, and because of that, I can act any way I want. Again, I'm here to tell you that God's love isn't only unconditional. We all have responsibilities. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you for this time, and I thank you for Regent. And Lord, I pray that we all continue with that desire and that love. And Lord, I pray for community, that we can honestly share with one another and with each other whatever is on our minds, without judgment and without reprisal. In your name we pray. Amen.